Well, every Christmas, there is a gift that I have to get. And if I don't get it, my wife's here so she can tell you this is true. If I don't get it, I rush out the day after Christmas to buy it for myself. And I can usually get it at half off by that time. Because you see, it's one of those calendars for the next year. And I'm not good with just any old calendar. This has to be one of those page-a-day tear-off calendars because, you see, it's harder with the robe, but we can do this. Each day I write down what it is that I have to do. And then I tear it off and I put it in my pocket and check it periodically to make sure that I've done those things. For instance, today, don't forget robe. That's what it says. Write sermon. And and, and it gives you a great sense of satisfaction because you can check them off. Preach at 8.15. Preach at 9.30. Preach at 11. Well, I guess that's what we're doing. And then the next one says, take nap. And over the years, I've had different kinds of these calendars. Of course, I've had the Bible verse a day, but you don't have to have that to be a Christian. It's okay. Because at other times, I've had the History Channel factoid of the day. I have to confess that I've even had the beer of the day calendar. Just the calendar, not the product itself. This year, and this is the problem, you get the half off, that's the good news. But the bad news is you kind of have to take what's left. And this year, what was left that I found appealing was the great quote of the famous person of the day. And sure enough, about a month ago, at a point where I knew I was going to be called upon to do this today, um, I came across right in the middle of March Madness, you know, during the height of the college basketball frenzy, a quote from John Wooden, the legendary coach of the UCLA Bruins. And this is what Coach Wooden had to say. Excuse me. Things turn out best for the people who make the best of the way things turn out. One more time. Things turn out best for the people who make the best of the way things turn out. I said, man, that'll preach. Yeah. And I'm really being put to the test today. Because as things turned out last night, the faulty alarm system in our house chose to go off three times between the hours of 1 and 2 a.m. Not the best time if you're trying to get some rest. But that's okay. Because things turn out best for the people who make the best of the way things turn out. And here we are. Now, Wooden, Coach Wooden, was a devout Christian and a student of the Bible. But I don't know if he had the story of Cain and Abel in mind when he gave us this pithy little nugget. I knew that I couldn't just preach from John Wooden's little words on a calendar, that I needed to take that thought and find something in Scripture to help us with it. I believe I have. You say, Cain and Abel, wait a minute, I know what that's about. That tells us that as soon as we have alienated ourselves from God, then things go downhill rapidly. We turn on one another. And it also teaches us, look at how bad we can be. Look at how wicked we can become when we exercise the freedom that God has given us. Sure, those are messages that are in the story of Cain and Abel, but 
I want us to learn something else from <clears throat> that scripture this morning. I think we can learn something about how we are to respond when things don't go our way and we really don't know why. When we were little and inexplicably disappointed in our desires, we cried out, what? That's not fair. But as we have matured, we cry out, that's not fair. We still do it. Or at least we want to do it, but we're sometimes held back from doing it because we remember what our parents said and what we've probably said to our kids is whoever said life was fair, or as I was reminded in 815 service this morning, uh, the fair's in Dallas the second week of October. <clears throat> but a study of our text from Genesis 4 this morning will, I hope, draw our attention away from the issue of fairness toward the matter of response. How do we respond when these things happen? Whether we are able to see that message in our passage depends in part on whether we try to rationalize what happens to Cain or whether we don't try to rationalize what happens to Cain. Let's look at our passage and try to see what I'm getting at. <clears throat> Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> So, why does God prefer Abel's sacrifice to Cain's? We always want to know the answer to that question. Why, right? We don't want things not to be able to be answered. Why? There must be some reason, some defect in Cain himself, some defect in his offering. And the New Testament authors seem to feel like we need to have some kind of an explanation because in 1 John we are told that Cain was evil and that his deeds were evil. So I guess, therefore, what do you expect from Cain? The author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, but without telling us what was more acceptable about it. Many have speculated that Cain did not bring the first fruits uh, of the ground, but I say in the Genesis account we just read, there's nothing in there blaming Cain for his offering or somehow telling him that he got it wrong. And I'm not surprised by that. God had not yet laid down any rules for what one was supposed to offer as sacrifice. So how would Cain have known in any event? So I want to suggest that if we avoid the temptation to rationalize, to try to find some explanation, some defect in Cain or his offering, 
we can learn a lesson that will really help us. Because when we try to rationalize what happens to Cain, it's so easy, it's so easy to deny the applicability of the story to our lives, right? We just say, well, wait a minute, we're not evil. Our offerings are heartfelt. My deeds are not of the devil. I'm not like him. But that's the easy way out. The real question for us today, I believe, is whether Cain was willing to learn from his disappointing experience so that he could change for the better. In other words, whether Cain was going to live a depressing, backward-looking life, always asking, why him, God? Why him and not me? Or whether he was going to live a hopeful, forward-looking life, marked by a willingness to learn from his experience, from that experience of disappointment. And I see we, we see this issue most clearly raised in verses 6 and 7 of the passage. We're told at the end of verse 5 that when God did not look on Cain's offering with favor, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. But the Lord said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, of course, God could have posed that as a rhetorical question and said, well, after all, your faithless, evil offering was your fault, not mine. So what's the problem, Cain? But no, God didn't do that. What God did instead was to offer a forward-looking challenge. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It's what you do from here, Cain, that's going to matter. But the challenge was also accompanied by a warning. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Will Cain learn to master it? Will he do what is right? As we know, he didn't. And CSI Eden had its first homicide to deal with. But thankfully, and this is what I love about God's Word, what He's given us, He's given us so much more than little stories here and there. He's given us a big story, a story that includes lots of other stories. And in Genesis, same book, in Genesis we get the story of two brothers. Once again, an older one who gets a bad deal. But this time we're told that the older one did master his envy, did master his anger, did master his sin. He did the right thing. Who is this older brother? His name is Esau. And Esau certainly got the short end of the stick for no reason apparent to him. You remember Esau, right? One of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And Esau was to be the favored one. He popped out first of the two twins. And so he was the one who was to receive his father's blessing and carry out the promise that God had made to Abraham and his progeny. He was to be the favored one. But, and don't miss this, in the womb, when the kids were still kicking at each other inside of mama, And Rebecca says, what's going on, Lord? He says, well, we're going to turn things upside down. The older is going to serve the younger. And we know from Sunday school 
the stories about how that played out, right? First, the younger brother extorts the birthright from his older brother Esau. And I do mean extorts. Many times you'll hear folks talk about this passage and say, ah, Esau, what a loser. He undervalued his birthright. He didn't take it seriously. Well, I say, no, Jacob, what a wicked man. That's what John Calvin said. He said, all Jacob had to do was the godly thing and give something to eat to a hungry brother. But he didn't do it. He extracted his brother's birthright from him for the stew. And then to seal the deal, you remember this, right? Isaac lays dying, he's blind, he doesn't know who's who. Jacob disguises himself as his brother, comes to his dad, feels to the touch hairy like his brother, tricks his father Isaac into giving him, the younger son, the blessing. And the trick works. Right? The trick works. This is not fair. If anybody had a right to say it, he did. You get the picture, right? What has happened to Cain has now happened to Esau, but I'd say it's happened in spades. And you can rationalize till the cows come home if you want to, but I dare you to answer the why question of the womb. Why, before either of the brothers had done anything to merit favor or disfavor, did God say the older will serve the younger? The only answer we have is the one the Apostle Paul gives us in his epistle to the Romans in which he says this is a decision of a sovereign God as part of a plan that he knows and we don't always know. That's the best answer we have. So how did Esau feel about what happened to him? The older guy got the short end of the stick. Well, he felt pretty much as we would expect. Felt pretty much as we would if we were honest, right? In Genesis 27:41, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's what I call a grudge, yes? That's what I call thinking like Cain. I'm going to kill him. But fast forward. Fast forward to the showdown between the two brothers when it comes. About 20 years later, in Genesis 33. I want to read the first several verses of that chapter. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front. Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, they too bowed down. Esau asked, 
What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I don't, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Brings tears to your eyes, really. Esau has not been Cain. He has mastered the sin that has crouched at his door for so long. He has done what was right. And I don't think you can miss this, and I tried to read it so that you wouldn't. His face was not downcast. His face, according to his estranged brother, was like seeing the face of God. A face full of love, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. Parallel stories, aren't they? Older brother, younger brother, older brother getting the bad deal. Both of them understandably upset. But one learned from the disappointment, tamed his anger, tamed his envy. The other did not. So we've looked at Cain and Abel. We've looked at Jacob and Esau. Now it's time to look at you and me. It's easy to say, well, God hasn't disrespected my offering lately, at least not that I know. No sibling has stolen my inheritance yet, or at least not that I know. <clears throat> but I think we are safe here in generalizing the issue to much more than what's in the story in the terms of how we are disappointed in this life. And fortunately, I found an Old Testament scholar uh, who agreed with me. And here's what Walter Moberly writes in his thinking about this passage. It is worthwhile to stand back from the biblical text, to step back from Genesis 4, and to reflect more generally on a fundamental and inescapable aspect of the human condition, that many of the factors that matter most to people are unequally distributed in ways that do not relate to people's merits. For many people, one of the things they are most proud of or most ashamed of is bodily appearance and shape. Likewise, with intelligence. Yet these are factors substantially determined for us in the womb, irrespective of our preferences or deserving, and they are distributed in endlessly variant and unequal ways, writes Moberly. I would add, moreover, much of what happens in life after we leave the womb also happens unpredictably and apparently randomly. Now, I say apparently here, because we know, as good Christians, we know that these are not, in the end, random. We know that in God's sovereign plan, all things will work together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. We know that. But in the meantime, the badness, the unfairness, the inequity, the shortchanging, whatever it may be in our lives, we have to deal with. 
whether we are talking about cancer, whether we're talking about drunk drivers, whether we're talking about earthquakes. The fact of the matter is that when it comes to tragedy or, for that matter, when it comes to prosperity and long life, some are less favored in other, than others, and it often has nothing to do with whether we've been bad or good. And I think this is what the story of Cain and Abel can help us with this morning if we avoid the temptation to ask, why did these things happen to Cain? And instead ask what we ought to be asking, what do I do now? What do I hope for? Like Cain, will we respond to disappointment and an often painful reality with resentment and bitterness? Or will we respond like Esau, constructively, earnestly seeking God's will for our future, a future for Esau which included reconciliation in a very heartfelt moment? Will we tame our anger? Will we master the sin of envy and self-pity? Well, life goes on either way. But if we can resist the temptation to write off Cain as just a bad guy or someone who offered a measly sacrifice, if we can put that aside and not try to answer the question why, but simply see this story as one in which God, for reasons not giving, says simply to Cain, no. No. And as people of faith, we must learn not to get angry but to accept that no as an invitation to learn and to grow. To learn how to turn from envy to gratitude. From disappointment to gratitude. From hurt to gratitude. And by gratitude here, I mean something much more than, okay, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be thankful for what I have. All right. I won't worry about what I don't have. I'll give thanks for what I have. That's a worthy response. But it goes, it's more than that. And it's more than, boy, am I really thankful, I guess, that it wasn't worse than it was. Whatever happened to me was bad, but I guess it could have been worse, so I am thankful. Sure, that's part of it as well. But I want to close by speaking of a gratitude that is grounded in love for neighbor. Grounded in love for one another. As another Old Testament commentator said about this passage, he drew this out of it. He says, love, love is sometimes seen most clearly in gratitude that God has gifted another person. True love of neighbor is seen when I love my brother enough not to be envious. Can we do that? Can we respond to disappointment, with joy for another, with love for another, celebration for the other. You know, I always wonder about that. People should, in fact, pray for a particular job that they hope for, but there's somebody else praying for that same job, isn't there? We all want to win the lottery. I'm not sure about praying to win the lottery, but somebody's going to win it. It's probably not going to be us, but somebody's prayer got answered. So somebody's going to be disappointed. And so 
true love of neighbor, which we are called by the Lord Jesus Christ to do, is seen when we love them enough not to be envious of the good that has come to them. And now, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I'm drawn to close this by looking at these two Old Testament stories from Genesis 4, Genesis 25 and 33. I'm drawn to look at those Old Testament stories now through New Testament eyes. Because I remember that Jesus told a story about two brothers as well. An older one and a younger one. We know the story as the parable of the prodigal son, don't we? Could easily have been named the parable of the ticked off son. In fact, I think that would probably be a better title because if you look at why Jesus told the story, which we should always do when we read parables. They're pretty cool in and of themselves. But go back and see, why did Jesus tell this story? And what was happening here was that the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling, not rejoicing that Jesus was dining with sinners, not sharing the joy that was coming to those who were in the very presence of God. And to stifle their grumbling. Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son because he wanted them to see in, you guessed it, the older brother. He wanted to see them, have them see themselves in the character of that older brother, not able to get over whatever it was that was keeping them from celebrating sinners coming to the Christ. Well, I've always found it interesting. We know what happened in Cain and Abel. We know what happened to Esau and Jacob. We really don't know, do we, what happens in the, at the end of the story of the prodigal son. The ticked-off son is definitely irritated that his dad is throwing the wayward brother a party the likes of which he had never had. And so we get the notion that this is going to end badly, but we're not given the ending, are we? We aren't told whether the older brother actually went on to enjoy the party and celebrate the gift that had come back to his father, the gift that the father had given to the younger son. We don't know if he did that or whether he sat out the party sulking. Did he respond to perceived unfairness like Cain? Or did he respond to perceived unfairness like Esau? Will we respond to these things like Cain? Or will we respond like Esau? We know the answer that Jesus wants. Let us pray. Lord, as we come humbly to your table, one with another, some of us hurting and some of us thriving, May we learn from your word given to us today. May our faces not be downcast, but may they appear to our brothers and sisters to be like your very face, full of love, full of compassion, reflecting that fathomless grace that you have shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who in obedience to your will died a most unfair death, that we might live with you always. Amen.
And now it is my privilege to invite those gathered here to this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is not a table that belongs to the Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. It's not a table that belongs to the Presbyterian Church in general. It is a table that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his behalf, it is my privilege to invite all who hold him to be their Lord and Savior to come celebrate the Lord's Supper together this day. 